City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. OK, City Limits, we're on air. Bandy Britt pressed the buttons and got us on air and did a great job. So Doing a great job so far, isn't he? Thank, Thank you, Andy. Yes, Amazing. Superb. superb. And that was Meg Kimber over there. I'm Kevin Healy. It is City Limits. It's the fourth Wednesday of the month, and therefore we haven't got a specific subject, but we have got two really interesting guests today, and one of them is one you've lined up, uh, Meg. Yes, Hannah Orby from the Australia Institute. Um, she's been in Canberra now Oh, maybe six months working um, but on issues of corruption in federal government. So it will be really interesting to talk to her. Yes, yeah. and uh, in fact there was a report about that in, I think it was The Age last week. Um, oh, yes, excellent. Which Do is you have I'm that gonna, in, in amongst your clippings? I have, and I'm gonna, it's what I'm going to base my interviews on. That's all I know about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she does get quoted in that article, yeah. Ah, oh, great. Uh, and in the first half of the program, and, and indeed the, we need a, um, the, uh, the point is that they're saying we desperately need a federal mm-hmm. anti-corruption body, as yep. the states in New South Wales and Victoria have, and there's nobody yeah. in, in federally that can look at any of this stuff. So yeah, it seems like it's all a bit disjointed. Yeah, yeah. yeah so that's uh, that's that one, and uh, we're also going to be talking in the first half of the program to Mark Zimzak, who's the um, who's with the um, the inter-church gambling, um, whatever they call themselves, and the name will come to me at some point, um, and. Um, they are, um, and they're um, just going to talk generally about some gambling issues. But in recent weeks, there's been a couple of specifics cropped up. One is that the government, I think we mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, the government's taking more from mm. pokey machines. And mm. we've, in the past, we've pointed out that that reliance on that money puts them in a bit of a conflict of interest when it comes Definitely. to addressing problem gambling. And I don't know what Mark will think about that. We'll find out. Mm. And secondly, there's been a, a suggestion that they could have paperless pokies and uh, you can uh, get a card and put money on it and then uh, use your card and mm. uh, the argument would be I think that you're likely to lose a lot more and also more likely I think to lose what you win because it will go on the card and you just keep mm. betting so um of course yes yeah, so uh so we'll look at but there's other issues too I think since we lasted and, and we've done over the years a number of interviews about problem gambling and uh, I have to confess a conflict of interest here myself in some ways. I mean, the, the putters did educate me, as I pointed out before. My father was a bookmaker and on course. Um, but also, um, and I do have a bit on racehorses, but I've never been on the pokies, and it's those problems, I think, that we... But it, because it also, I think, other forms of gambling are now a major problem because of the fact that they're so easy to do online and you've got all these corporate bookies turning up. Mm. So it's, it's a much broader problem now than it probably was even when yeah. pokies were the main source of problem gambling. So we'll talk about all those issues during the program. That's what we're going to do. Okay, you got anything you wanted to uh, to raise there, Mick, at all? Kevin, I don't have any news. I've been in Tasmania for the last six um, days and I... Haven't looked at any papers. That would explain why you got no news then. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, that's being unfair to Tasmania, isn't it? Really. I uh, looked at the Mercury, but I can't remember what was in it. Um, so nothing. Nothing. <laughs> so, <laughs> nothing so, of great significance. Obviously, no. Perhaps. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't rising, so to speak. <laughs> um, 
No, that's uh, okay. We'll let that one slide as well. I, I did want to, um, I did want to raise a um, a little matter. Um, the no, I don't. I'm going to. Look, I'm going to pour the tea and then sort out my papers because I seem to be in some complete mess here at the moment. But I'm sure I can sort it out very quickly. Um, I'll pour the tea. Here we go. Uh, there's one there. I'll pour a half a cup there. You give us your cup there, Meg. I'll, uh, Thank you. Pour your half a cup. And we know Andy won't drink our tea. It's He's a coffee drinker. Yeah, that's right. Look, there have been a series of articles. This is one thing I did want to raise this morning. There's been a series of articles um, about the state of the economy uh, that were running for several days over... Um, in the um, over se- several days in the Financial Review, um, a headline like "No Relief for Households as Business Rallies," and it kicked off stumping, a slumping confidence among heavily indebted, increasingly taxed, and low wage growth inflicted households is contrasting dramatically with a buoyant business sector enjoying the best operating conditions in a decade. And it goes on to point out that business is going terrific. Um, businesses happy not least because profits are strong with the profit share of national income close to a record said independent economist Saul Eslake. By contrast, the wage share is close to an all-time low. And whereas, for example, rising unemployment is primarily of concern to people who have lost or fear losing their job, which is never a majority of employees, the stagnation of wages affects virtually all employees. So it goes on about that. Mm. And then a couple of days later, uh, confidence falls as households miss out on profit recovery. The surge in corporate profits is not trickling down to households in the form of higher wages. Isn't that a surprise? Mm, yes, we've what? always thought, we've always believed in this trickle down thing. <clears throat> anyway, it's being knocked on the head a bit um, as measures of business and consumer confidence move further in the opposite direction. Economists at Citigroup have called out a, a worrying trend as surveys of actual consumer conditions have slipped into negative territory, even as business conditions pick up sharply. Um, and they point out there's record profits alongside the, this low wages growth again. And then a couple of days after that, out they come again. And the, the business community has its say on why this is happening. It's the government's fault, not theirs. Oh. Yeah, CEOs fault government for wide sentiment gap. Some of Australia's top chief executives have blasted a lack of political leadership for an unprecedented disconnect between surging business confidence and low household sentiment. Um, and they go on to say, while businesses are quick to blame political uncertainty for the fragile consumer sentiment, economists have pointed out that many of the drivers have been caused by changes initiated by business. That's a bit strange, isn't it? They, there's concerns over job security, a lack of employee willingness to push for high wages, the global threat, etc. Um, and then again, a couple of days later, though, um, it's... Um, we get another headline which says uh, strength of business sentiment a stark contrast to consumer gloom and they go on again about the same thing. So it's several days of these headlines running recently and I'm going to have a sip of tea. Hang on a tick. Um, and the the biggest problem at the, the end which we would care about seems to be slow wages growth and many times on this program we've pointed out that if if a problem in the economy is wages are growing too slowly... Surely there's a glaring answer to that, isn't there? Isn't there mm. a fairly obvious answer to low raising, wages? Growth? Raising wages? Yeah, that's yeah. that's. That, Would that be it? <laughs> yes, yes, oh. yes. It's glaring, isn't it? Mm. Um, so I, I just well, have a little bit of trouble working out what what their problem is. It's interesting. When I moved to Melbourne, like I've looked for various types of jobs, and I know other people who 
have and work in hospitality and no one sort of I've encountered mm. pays award wages. So in some ways the conversation about award wages is a little bit academic if mm. people are not following award yeah, wages and, you know, people can be getting paid a lot, a lot less than that. Um, which turns it into a kind of a system like America, which has very low mm. wages compared to the cost of living. But they also have a tip system, so they which people would, make a lot more money from tips, which doesn't happen here. No, but there's yeah. also they, often they, places they don't get wages at all. They just have to bank on tips, of course. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, and of course, uh, like, uh, was Christmas before. I don't know if they still do it or not, but a couple of Christmases ago, at least, Walmart's actually had a a, a, a tin at the front or a, a collection thing out the front. Um, for for customers to put money in so their workers could have a decent Christmas. Oh I mean, my uh, you know, they didn't think maybe the best way to give them a decent Christmas is, is to, to pay, pay them. them a living wage. Yeah, yeah. That's how you end up with working poor. So you know, this kind of system is happening in Australia as well. But they they're the biggest uh, they're the biggest corporation in America, I think, aren't they? So and it uh, it shows that if you don't mm. pay workers much, you can make a lot of money, mm. which is good about it. That's and then then it trickles down, of course. Yeah, you see? So somehow. Yes, yeah. that's right. So it's all okay. And your customers pay the workers. Well, they do anyway, but that's beside the point. Um, the other one this week, Everdeen, Evergreen Dividends, Fuel, etc. Good old Andrew Forrest, mining billionaire Andrew Forrest, has booked a $620 million payday after Fortescue Metals handed down a bumper profit report and unveiled a more generous dividend policy. It's been a good week for Andrew because he also... He also won a court case last week in the High Court. It's been a pretty long-running one. We've mentioned it here before. Um, a court case with a mining company. So as you, you'll say to yourself, ah, these are two mining companies fighting over something, won't you? You'll say that, won't you? Um, I can do, if yeah. you want. Yeah. But that was the thought you had, wasn't it? Andy, you, your thought was that, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, <coughs> Absolutely, yeah. Well, it wasn't that at all, because as we know, mining companies have an inalienable right under capitalist law to move on to private property and dig up and do what they like to do. They've got yep. all these rights over private property. Yep. The court case was Andrew, who, of course, is one of the biggest mining company executives, but he's also his family, as we know, the Forrest family, got their wealth from knocking off Indigenous land and large tracts of and running mm-hmm. cattle, cattle properties all over northern Australia. And... Um, and in fact, he was fighting over one of his cattle properties that a mining company wanted to come on and dig up. And so he actually, he won the court case, by the way, to stop a mining company coming onto his property. Oh, that's, that's a good precedent. Yes, but it's of good course... good for all the other farmers out there. But of course, um, Andrew um, doesn't mind going onto other people's property with his company. But uh, mm. I just thought I'd, I'd mention that, that there might have been just a, a slight um, mm. contradiction there somewhere. Well, but. our guest today, Hannah, we used to work for the Lock the Gate Alliance. So ah, if we get time, right. yes. she might have something interesting yes, to say about that's that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Good old Andrew. So mm. there you are, he did that. Um, and uh, just apropos, I suppose we better have our usual Herald Sun piece. And this one I found really interesting. Page two on Monday, Jess, there's a thing, a young woman with a tennis racket, but she's on a race course beside the Flemington in the straight. Now, it's a bit, she obviously got confused finding her way to the tennis court. Mm. Um, 
but she's looking, you know, in fashionable dress. And Aussie screen siren, she's game set and matched, it says. Isn't that a clever headline? <laughs> Aussie screen siren Jessica McNamee looks the part as tennis icon Margaret Court, who she plays in the upcoming Hollywood blockbuster Battle of the Sexes. I can play tennis and I'm quite athletic, but I certainly got better having to do an hour's training five days a week, seven, etc. said McNamee, who will be a spec. This, this is the promotion bit, of course, who will be a special guest of Luxury Watch Company, and they named the company for this year's Melbourne Cup. Mm. That was on page two, but you go back then to the, a couple of pages later, and here's a photo of another young woman uh, raking, um, life's just perfect for Finch. Rachel Finch says she is content as a mother having the perfect pair. Now, I think that's meant to be a double meaning. The Maya ambassador, see, she's a Maya ambassador. They mentioned Maya. Mm. And model has a three-year-old daughter and son, etc. with her husband. Life has completely changed. Um, nothing more with navigating more with a husband, a dog, two kids, but I love it. It feels full, but incredibly fulfilling. I think it was two girls. We'd try for a boy straight away, etc., etc. And the end again, Finch will be in Melbourne during the spring racing carnival. Oh, good. So, so I knew, I read that out because I knew you'd want to, you'd be thrilled to know she's coming to Melbourne yep. for the carnival and hope to meet her, I suppose. Uh, yep. Yeah. Know everything about it the does racing. tell us what she's wearing and who made them if you wanted to find that out. I can show it to you later Thank you. if you like. Thank you. If you could yeah. just... Yeah, put that yeah. in my pigeonhole, please. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, look, we'll go to our first guest very shortly, but this uh, business this week also where Yarra Council and then Darabin Council voted to get rid of um, Invasion Day uh, and the government's acted immediately and there's been all the usual suspects are saying that they're the ones who are dividing the country by, by mm. knocking off a day that in fact by its very nature, in my opinion, divides the country. Yeah. Mm, uh, yeah. Am I missing something there, do you think? Uh, um, I'm not sure how to make sense of that. No. 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 Um, so I didn't. I hadn't heard that news. The Darabin Council have. They did it two nights ago. Must they're not going. So yeah. they're not going to do any sort of events or activities. Or no, no. They, in fact, they're going to. They're going to call it. They're going to celebrate it as Darabin Community Awards, but then yesterday the government took their right for citizenship away anyway. So, <laughs> Well, they did that with Yarra last week. They, the, the federal government the next day in both cases has taken away their right to conduct citizenship ceremonies. Because of that? Because, of, because wow. they, they're, they're abusing they're abusing Invasion Day. Mm. It's wonderful, isn't it? And just a, another little item. Um, it's not so little for the poor bloody dolphin. But a terrified baby dolphin died after tourists crowded around it in the sea to pose for photographs. Oh. The small female, young enough to still be suckling, lost its mother and became stranded in shallow waters off the coast of southern Spain. Marine conservationists raced to the scene, but the dolphin was already dead, etc., etc. But That's just really these sad. silly, bloody tourists who uh, who uh, have no respect for uh, for the poor thing that was obviously, you know, in distress mm. with having couldn't find its mum and all that sort of stuff. And of course, the mother would be in distress as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So that's that's so on that happy little note. Oh, actually, on a perhaps not so well. We're not on happy notes. I, I did. I will mention that um, a well-known draft assistant, Errol Heldzing, and he Errol died in Adelaide last week. He's seventy. He um, was very active and uh, as a draft assistant back in the anti-war days, the anti-Vietnam days. And um, he's been living in Adelaide for some years and quite ill, but he died last week and um, there will be some sort of memorial in Melbourne for him. Well, if people know who are interested, many people would probably remember mm. Errol from that period. And I want to 
thank Ray Bennett for informing me of that, letting me know about uh, about Errol. And um, Ray's well known on this station as Ray from Kensington as a phone mm. as a caller. <laughs> um, look, we'll take a break. Come back, and we're going to talk about gambling. You're listening to Three CR Radio. One. Okay, and uh, there was a countdown there. And um, Mark um, Mark Zimzak's on the line. And Mark, you're, um, of course, with the um, the Interchurch Gambling Task Force. Uh, and um, we've talked about gambling a number of times in this program over the years, but in recent weeks there's been a couple of developments. One is the, the government's taking more off pokies, and it's been, long been argued that their reliance on pokey income is a bit of a conflict of interest when it comes to addressing problem gambling. Do you agree with that, that thought? Look, I, I, I think it plays a small role, but I actually do think the role has been overstated. I actually support the announcement that was made. This is, this is probably one of the more positive things. Yeah. Um, we've actually seen the announcement made means that pokey venues that make the most money will pay more tax. But if, if the machines are making less than $80,000 a year, they will actually pay the existing amount of tax. Um, and the government sort of said, uh, look, they, they haven't been willing to get rid of pokies and they're not going to give the community a say over getting rid of the pokies. But the, the positive in this is that um, they've said they won't go to a competitive auction over the... Um, the pokies. Now, if you wanted to make a lot of money, that would be the way a state government would do it. You would uh, open this up for competitive auction, and then you'd get people paying a lot of money for them, and the people who can afford to pay a lot of money for them are the people who are going to thrash the machines and, uh, you know, get the most out of the community for themselves and have to give a bit of it back to the government through taxes. Um, whereas what they've really announced is they're saying, you know, the small, the, the clubs that aren't making much of their machines, they're going to be offered a price that they are going to be able to afford and their taxes aren't going to increase. So it's actually, if we have to have these things, at least uh, you know there's going to be more opportunity for them to be in the venues that don't thrash them and, and seek to make a lot of money. Rightio. And the other, other development, of course, was the suggestion you might have cashless pokies where you have a card, and this, this does seem to be quite dangerous. Yes, it? look, that's, that's the one that's very disappointing and that, that does feel like because the pokies industry was very upset um, over the over the announcement on the taxes and um, that the big the big boys weren't going to be able to go into an auction and get the machines that the government's put on the table um, the idea that the industry the pokies barons can move forward with introducing cashless gambling. Now the issue here is that the research shows that as you move to cashless, people lose a sense of what they what they're losing. And it makes it more likely to drive up the amount of money that's being that's being lost. And also, of course, if you win, I mean, I'm presuming your winnings go back on the card. Yes. you're more likely to spend the winnings than cash them. That that would be the fear that yeah, yes, people will will um you know that's already a danger. And one of the signs of having a problem with gambling is people who either chase losses or um you know spend all their spend all anything that they they get back. Um, so look, that that is a real danger, and it's very disappointing that instead of just ruling this out, the government's actually moving forward to make it possible to happen. Now, cashless gambling um, in the form of ticket in, ticket out already does happen down at Crown Casino, um, but this this does this will open it up to the pubs and clubs, and also um, does allow it to be uh, more like you you have a permanent card that you load cash on, and you can 
take that between machines. Mm. You mentioned before big players and little players in terms of the pokies. There are sort of bigger businesses and smaller businesses and do you see a difference between the kind of issues that people have with problem gambling in different uh, venues? Oh, look, definitely. (laughs) So um, you you would certainly... to our understanding, um, you'd certainly see a lot more danger in in venues that are have machines that are making a lot more money. Right. So, um, you know, at the bottom end of the market, you you have some venues where a machine will generate uh, in profit for the oh in uh, revenue for the club or pub, you know, thirty thousand dollars a year. Mm. Um, at the upper end, it's over two hundred thousand dollars. Right. A year. So this is, you know, uh, look, some of that can be about how aggressively the the pub or club market their machines, but some of it will also just be what customers they, they just attract into the venue. Mm. Mm. Of course, footy clubs are well known as one of the the AFL clubs as uh, you know, having pokey machines. And as we know, uh, clubs in the leafy eastern suburbs have most of their pokies in the working class um, work western suburbs. Um, that's still a major problem, isn't it? That these these venues are put in those sort of areas where they have a captive audience. Oh, look, absolutely. So, so the I mean, the the venue owners just put their machines wherever they're going to make the most money. Um, and as it turns out, that often is in areas that have lower socioeconomic indicators, um, and therefore there's a, there's a cost to the community of all that money being ripped out um, from those those communities and the costs being worn in the community. And we do know, you know, this this has impacts on family breakdown. It has impacts on white collar crime fraud. Often um, is, is you know there's clear links between these pokey losses and increase in those kind of crimes. Mm. Um, look, and, and with regard to the football clubs, I mean, the other thing we've seen them do up until this point is they'll buy a pub and it's simply run as a pub, but they get to um, use it as effectively a club to generate... Um, it gets counted as a club, so they get a tax break um, from the pokey taxes as a result mm. of that. And, uh, you know, it's basically feeding money into the club to pay for players and... Mm. Um, other expenses, but it's not it's not for the benefit of the community, which which is different, you know. To a, it might be different to a bowling club that has a small number of machines where the money is going directly into the club. But mm. there's still harm taking place there with the machines, but um, at least you can see the whatever benefits being uh, gained is actually gained within that in that club. Now, the positive development has been though the football clubs under the public spotlight and the pressure are starting to talk about giving up the machines, and Geelong certainly made it clear they intend to give up their machines, but other clubs now are starting to back out as well. So well that, they often quote West Coast in the West, which is one of the most profitable clubs, yet it hasn't got poker machines. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, look, there isn't... And, and really, we should be moving away from our, our football code being dependent. And Western Australia, <laughs> yes, they've they've resisted... Uh, Western Australia's resisted rolling out pokies into pubs and clubs. There, there are pokies in the casino if people want to go and gamble on them but um and therefore the rates of of harm from gambling in western australia are much lower than all the other states that have introduced the pokies what does the interchurch gambling task force focus on generally mark like which areas is it broad or is it a bit focused on pokies or helping people or venues we, we have focused strongly on on pokies because they are still the bulk of money lost 
mm. um, to gambling and and clearly uh, the greatest contributor harm as well. So, eighty percent of people who appear to be harmed by gambling um, have pokies as at least part of mm. what they gamble on. Uh, so there is a focus there. I guess we've we've accepted we're not going to be able to get the state government to give up on pokies um, in Victoria, so we're not going to get them out. So we're looking to reduce the harm that they cause, and we focus, therefore, on things around the design of the machine. So mm. things like we said, there should be a $1 bet limit, so you can't lose more than a dollar a button press. Mm. We've also argued for greater community control over... Um, venues and placements, placement of machines and also expansion in existing venues. So currently the local governments can kind of go and argue their case with the regulator, but uh, which is the Victorian Commission for Gambling and Liquor Regulation, but largely um, almost all um, applications get approved. So there isn't a lot of chance for community say, whereas in New Zealand it's actually the local government who gets to set the policy and under that, you've seen a 40% reduction in the number of machines mm. over the last 20 years. So they've they've seen, and that's that's resulted in some some harm reduction in New Zealand. In recent years, I, I feel, maybe it's my perception, but I feel there hasn't been as much publicity about problem gambling, and it's almost as if it isn't as big a problem as it was. Is that is that a false perception? Uh, I think certainly there's been a lot less media coverage. So I. Uh, I think, unfortunately, after the um, deal that was struck between Julia Gillard and Andrew Wilkie, um, it, it tended to... The mainstream media um, moved away from the issue after that deal fell... After that basically fell apart and the Gillard government lost lost office, the issue around pokies dropped, really dropped off in the, the public media perception. I think the, <clears throat> the harm from gambling has... Uh, the evidence would suggest it has reduced um, somewhat over time, um, and and you would hope that's the case, and that's that's partly been there are less people gambling on the pokey. So, in Victoria, it was it used to be at, at its peak about one in three people gambled on the pokies. It's now down to one in six. Mm. So you've got less people. Mm. But the the concerning thing that's still there is that. Um, the amount lost by people hasn't changed much. So you've got a smaller number of people um, gambling a lot more, and it's it, there's quite a concern there that the pokies, the pokey venue owners, are becoming more and more dependent on people with heavy gambling losses, and therefore more dependent on inflicting harm to make their profits. And what kind of resources and support are available to people who are struggling with problem gambling? Look, there are there are counselling services. So there is. A gambler's help in in Victoria is the service people can call, or either whether they or a loved one is having a problem mm. with gambling. Um, so those services are quite well resourced, um, and you know that that's an area. But look, we also know that it's only probably about one in six people who are harmed by gambling, uh, severely harmed by gambling, who actually go and seek help at any time. Mm. So there's a real need to not only provide support for people once they have a problem and are being harmed, mm. but to try and prevent those problems occurring in the first place and try and curb the harm and uh, mm. make it easier for people to make better decisions about their gambling to not be harmed and also to rein in the industry from 
preying on people who are vulnerable. Mm. I must admit, the industry itself, um, both the manufacturers of the machines and even the venue owners, etc., all tell us that uh, there's a few problem gamblers, but generally people go there to have a bit of fun, a bit of entertainment. Now, I've been in in pubs where they've got poker machines, and I've never seen anyone look happy. Does does somehow uh, poker machines allow you to enjoy yourself without looking happy? <laughs> uh, it's a, it's a um, uh, yeah, an interesting call, and certainly some earlier research did did um, suggest that at least half the people asked um, did did pokies add to their enjoyment of life half said well no so um look in terms of the the issue is for also when you look at the overall group of people gambling um about two-thirds would gamble less than once a month so you've actually got this pretty small group of people who are the regular gamblers so when the industry says well look it's only a uh, you know it's a small part of the population of gambling problems it's actually it could be up to one in four people who are weekly gamblers on pokies who actually have a problem and are being harmed by their gambling. Mm-hmm. So it's actually quite a large number of the people who gamble regularly who end up being harmed by pokies. And what we also know is that uh, from previous state government research, it's, it's often when people have had a, a negative life event that they end up falling into having a gambling problem. So they might not, they might have been gambling before and it'll, it'll uh, you know, they're gambling within what they can afford, um, but they then go through a divorce or they lose a job or they have an accident at work and get a, a work cover payout and they end up turning to the machines um, at that time and um, losing a lot of money and getting into harm. The other thing that, that's, that's uh, happened just recently is the Victorian um, Responsible Gambling Foundation has done some research actually showing that people who don't gamble all that often also do suffer harms from their gambling. So it does have negative impacts on their lives. So there's a much larger group of people who might not suffer the severe problems like losing their house or losing their job or turning to, to fraud to fund a gambling problem who are still suffering some levels of harm uh, from their gambling behaviour. Mm. We were talking earlier about slow wages growth and at the moment there's stories all over the place about people having trouble meeting their utility bills and just meeting their bills generally. Is the, Does the reverse happen in that case where you find people decide they might turn to gambling to try and get out of the mess? Um, the gambling having not caused them poverty but they, they might increase their poverty by trying to get out of it? I, I haven't seen that as a, as a significant factor Um what we have known, though, is that even in times of economic hardship, the gambling industry tends to often be able to keep its, its you know, keep people keep losing with it. So um, it does appear that some people then still prioritise their gambling, and maybe that is through a belief that somehow they might get a big win and it'll help them through a difficult financial period. Mm. Yeah, the... Um the other area that's been fairly kind of or fairly new in recent years have been the corporate bookmakers. I mean, you said you concentrate heavily on pokies, but the corporate bookmakers betting on all sorts of things, all sports of all sorts, um, and the ease with which people can put bets on th- online uh, is that an increasing problem from problem gambling point of view? Yes, look, absolutely, and we have had a we have had some focus on that issue of the online um, gambling providers um, and there was certainly a lot of exposure to that financial counseling Australia did a, a very good 
um, report where they showed the kind of predatory marketing techniques that these companies were using. So for people with heavy losses, they would be assigned a uh, basically a, a relationship manager who might offer them uh, you know, free tickets to come along to a game and then they'd be given a bit of money to start them betting and then uh, you know, they'd lose more. They, that when people were getting in trouble, they'd be offered lines of credit by the online gambling companies. So... There was a lot of preying on on people, um, and the, the positive thing at the moment is the federal government has been moving forward with a bunch of reforms. We've just seen last week a piece of legislation go through the parliament um, at the federal level that will now ban these online gambling companies from being able to offer credit to people, so that's a, a really big step forward. It also bans the ability of them to offer what's called in-play betting um, uh, by, by this click-to-call method, which is um, people basically placing the bet online and then they press a click button and speak to someone to confirm they're placing the bet. Um, this was a loophole these online gambling companies were using. Now the government's closed that down. And there's a whole, there's a whole raft of other things they're looking to improve on. So they're, they're looking to rein in inducements, um, they're looking to allow people to set limits on their gambling online. Um, so there are some further reforms mm. that are under consultation at the moment from the federal government, which is very positive and, mm. and have the support of the state governments as well. Yeah. Um, and, of course, um, if you do win, I mean, you can't afford to win at either the casino or the corporate bookies because if you win consistently, they ban you anyway. <laughs> um, well, it's, yeah, it's, they want to make their money. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's loaded. <laughs> totally. Uh, Mark, okay, look, thanks for your time this morning, but um, we'll come back to this because it's an ongoing problem, the gambling problem, and we'll certainly keep in touch on it. But thanks for your time this morning. That'd be great. Look, and thanks for the opportunity to uh, talk to you this morning. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks. thanks. Um, that was Mark Sonsak, who's with the Interchurch Gambling Task Force. And. Mm. Um, it is a major problem. But, oh, uh, yeah. um, that uh, what's happening with the online gambling sounds really yeah. awful, yeah, really well, predatory. The, the new bookies, a lot of them have come out from from Britain, etc. But the companies that have come into Australia with the corporate bookies, they've they've been announcing record profits. So people, I are, bet they have. people are using them, and they yeah. they saturate. I do watch the races; they're on every day on the telly, and I watch them most days. And and they're saturated with ads for these things. Mm, and it's just right. bloody awful. Mm. All right, we'll take a break, come back, and we'll talk about, speaking of such things, corruption. Mm, mm. Yeah. And we have with us Hannah Orby from the Australia Institute, who's working on um, putting pressure on federal politicians to establish an anti-corruption commission in Canberra. Hi, Hannah. Hi there, how are you going? Good. So can you tell us why there's a need for a federal anti-corruption commission or integrity commission? Well, in Australia, at every in every state, there's... And there's a state anti-corruption commission and these bodies have found corruption within politics but also within departments and across government. Um, there's no such body at a federal level and we believe that if these bodies have been so successful in finding corruption at a state level, there's no reason why there's not, so there's not corruption and misconduct happening at a federal level. Mm. In fact, the the Public Service Commission itself has surveyed the public service, which is only one part of, of government, but their surveys find that their public servants have 
over a year seen about 3,000 cases of corrupt conduct. And that's just cases that they've witnessed and reported right. um, through their surveys. But the Public Service Commission doesn't have the investigative powers um, to properly deal with those cases and allegations. So right. a federal ICAC's needed to really find out what's going on and, and also to uncover uh, corruption in, in other levels of government. You know, the public service is only one part. So those cases that have been identified, they've not been investigated or are they internally investigated within the public service? Do you know? Some of them are internally investigated. A lot of them, nothing happens. Um, and and even the ones that are internally investigated aren't done in a sufficient, sufficient um, way because... The Public Service Commission doesn't have strong enough investigative powers. Mm. Um, and what we're calling for is a federal ICAC with powers of a royal commission, so mm. uh, one that can have coercive powers to bring evidence and witnesses to give, give information, but also one that can have public hearings so that whatever's happening within government is, is properly exposed to the public. Mm. And do you know why there hasn't been a federal one when there are ones in every state and territory? Well, this is a question that we, we are asking ourselves a lot and um, there's different answers. One is that obviously politicians don't want to put a level of scrutiny over their own power. Mm. So it's a very interesting thing because often when we're going for policy reform... It's government, like implying regulations on another person or entity or sector or whatever. But this is asking them to implement um, scrutiny over themselves, and and obviously that if if you if you're a powerful politician (laughs) who currently has no body oversight, you know, overseeing your conduct, it's you know a pretty tough thing for you to decide to put that in place yourself. But the reason that it's necessary, basically, is that public trust in government is at a record low in Australia and is still falling. Mm. And without trust in a democracy, democracies just stop functioning because people don't engage as citizens. They just kind of roll their eyes and Mm. start, you know... Start yeah. doing things their own way if they don't trust the institutions that are set up to run the country. You know, so there are big problems. You know, corruption does exist, and mm. the public want a federal ICAC, and and the public does not trust our government to provide that oversight of itself. Um, mm. And so we just believe that the time's right to to do something about it. Mm. Hannah, perhaps you could involve um, Arthur Sinodinus in pushing a case for you, but um, that's, a, that's a minor aside. Um, but y- your report does say that there are seven bodies, um, federal bodies responsible for integrity, but they don't coordinate. And you point, make the point none has the core function of exposing corruption and misconduct. Most cannot investigate MPs, ministers, ministerial staff or the judiciary. None hold regular public hearings, meaning corruption is not properly exposed to the public, which sounds pretty serious. Mm. Exactly. So the government says um, that that they're taking a multi-agency approach, um, which basically results in this piecemeal dog's breakfast 
of different agencies looking after different sectors and and as yeah as the research shows there's none that have sufficient powers or or a sufficiently broad definition of corrupt conduct uh, to do the job properly and and none have the, the power to investigate conduct of parliamentarians um, ministers and, and, as you said, ministerial staff and the judiciary. So mm. there's significant gaps in our system, and I think until those gaps are filled and the public actually can see that the, the government takes corruption seriously, um, that public trust is not going to increase. And, and obviously a federal ICAC is just the first step in rebuilding public trust. You know, there's, there's lots more we can do to improve our democratic process and improve our systems. Um, but while the government is denying that a, a federal ICAC is needed, uh, that public trust won't won't improve. Mm. What's mm. The, what's been the response in Canberra to um, in your conversations with politicians about setting something up like this? Well, we had a, a big conference last week involving members of the crossbench parties and and the ALP mm. uh, and. The crossbench were really supportive um, and they obviously wanted to see reform that will increase public trust because a lot of those crossbench parties provide some of the oversight that's lacking in a federal ICAC mm. because they're there and they can, but they're not tied into the major party lines and can, you know... Mm. Um, Provide some scrutiny. Could how provide the some scrutiny operates. from that, mm. from a, a different standpoint. But the, the sad fact is, at the moment, uh, that scrutiny is left. That scrutiny task, which is a massive, mm. massive part of our democracy, is left to, to minor parties that are under resourced. Mm. It's left to investigative journalists that are under resourced, um, and mm. it's left to parliamentary committees which have no interest in exposing misconduct within their own ranks. So we're really hoping that in the lead-up to the next federal election, one or both of the major parties will adopt a federal ICAC as their policy. Mm. Um, The ALP at the conference last week um, said that they recognised that the gaps are there in the system and that um, they recognised that a federal anti-corruption commission had some merit behind it. So they're, they're on the right track and we're hoping that if we can keep sort of building public pressure for this body that um, that one of the major parties will do the right thing mm. before the next election. One of the obvious examples, I think, would be the recent exposure about water rorts with the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. Now, here's an authority that no one, or the federal government, in fact, I suppose, has... Um, ultimate oversight but again it travels through many states there's no, lots of states involved in the whole thing and yet no one can really claim uh, responsibility for investigating corruption I imagine Exactly and that's a, a prime case that we think would be uh, a great uh, first case for a federal ICAC to investigate um, and you're right, corruption doesn't stop at the border and you know the Murray-Darling Basin the Murray-Darling River doesn't stop at the border. These things, you know, both the river and corruption flow throughout, you know, throughout states and, and, and nationally. And when we've, we've got so many federal schemes, 
I mean, that's just one example, but there's so many federal schemes that govern or manage or um, have some role in, uh, yeah, governing national resources. Um, and currently, bodies like New South Wales ICAC, which is a really strong body, can do what they can, and, and they'll they'll look into the Murray Darling Basin case. But um, I've heard from barristers that were directly involved in New South Wales ICAC during investigations into Eddie Obeid, and they've told me that they'd be following cases and following threads of inquiry, and as soon as that thread mm. left New South Wales, they had they couldn't follow it. So mm. it might be, like, who knows? It might be that the, you know, the Eddie Obeid case and the Ian McDonald case and other cases that New South Wales ICAC have um, investigated, it might be that there's links, and it's probable, you know, like, it's not that far from Sydney to Brisbane or Sydney mm. to Melbourne. It's probable that um, some of those links into those scandals are still left uncovered because New South Wales ICAC didn't have the jurisdiction to pursue it and a federal ICAC is the only body that can provide real oversight of, of schemes like the Murray-Darling Basin but also those state issues that cross that go across borders. So would you see a federal body allowing state bodies to, to seek that information in some way or other? Yeah, and so I imagine that in New South Wales ICAC, if they found something that was bigger than just existing in Sydney and New South Wales, could I imagine it could refer it to a federal body to say, look, we think this is a national issue, we'll pass it over to you guys. Mm. Um, and and I'm, sure, I think, I'm sure that a federal ICAC would uh, go a long way in coordinating not only the efforts of the seven agencies that already exist at a federal level, but also the state bodies, because at the moment it's just a piecemeal and uncoordinated and there's, there's massive gaps, as I've shown in the research. Mm. Oh, did you? Uh, were you working with Tony Fitzgerald, who uh, was the lawyer who did the inquiry into the, um, that ended up with Joe Bucky Peterson quitting? Is it? Did I see that he did a survey of? politicians in Canberra about um, corruption and integrity? Yeah, that's right. So we worked with Tony Fitzgerald to survey the moral ethics of of parliamentarians um, and to, I guess, ask them whether whether they were able to commit to a a base level of uh, integrity and and behaviour such as... um, you know, committing to tell the truth and treat all citizens equally mm. um, and always act in the public interest, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we worked with Tony Fitzgerald to survey all of the federal parliamentarians on those issues. And mm. what we found is that that only a quarter of parliamentarians were happy to commit mm. to those things. Mm-hmm. Um a large majority didn't respond and some actually refused to participate. Um, so that was quite disappointing because, um, you know, obviously Tony Fitzgerald has done done the hard yards and is, you know, one of the most respected and renowned anti-corruption fighters. And, you know, the fact that parliamentarians aren't happy to commit publicly to these to these values shows that we need to 
implement structures such as the federal ICAC and potentially a parliamentary code of conduct mm. um, that puts these things in law because oh, what we've shown through that survey is that um, then they won't mm. they won't do it if the you know if if we ask mm. so it's a bit more important that it's legislated I suppose. I'm still contemplating that phrase, the moral ethics of parliamentarians. But anyway, um, the the state bodies, uh, are they perfect anyway? I mean, could they be tightened up as well, do you think? They could, and I've done a lot of research comparing the different models because um, obviously we've got a lot of experience in Australia of anti-corruption agencies having bodies across each state. Um, and there is massive differences in how they operate and how successful they are. So um, we've shown through the research that New South Wales ICAC is the most effective body by far um, and some of, the, some of the reasons why that's the case is that it holds regular public hearings which is critical to exposing corruption to the public but also it's cr- public hearings are critical in inviting members of the public to come forward as witnesses who otherwise might not even know that the investigation is taking place. So public hearings serve an investigative sort of function, but they also serve that function of exposing corruption and misconduct to the, to the public, which is mm. one of the core reasons why you set up one of these bodies. So New South Wales ICAC has regular public hearings, and it's the only state body that does, um, which is, you know, maybe surprising to listeners to we would assume that if a, a anti-corruption agency set up like a, a royal commission is holding hearings in private about these serious issues. Um, and so that's one thing that we're concerned with and one thing that we'd like to see implemented at a federal level. But the other design features that New South Wales ICAC has that makes it way more effective compared to the other state bodies um, uh, that it has a very broad jurisdiction, so it can investigate any person, whether they're a public official or not, that is trying to ad- adversely affect the impartial or honest um, exercise of public office. So that means that it, it's able to um, investigate anyone that is trying to corrupt um, processes of public government and um, that definition of corrupt conduct I guess varies across the state bodies uh, and that's another mm. another feature that we'd like to see implemented at a federal level. Mm. That's interesting and um, what about the anti-corruption efforts in Victoria since we're calling you from a Melbourne radio station what sort of what have you learned about that or what do you know about it? Yeah, so the Victorian IBAC, it's the Independent Broad-Based Commission Against Corruption, um, it has some uh, restrictions on its jurisdiction and also on its powers. So it can only hold public hearings if it can prove that um, it's an exceptional circumstance. Mm. And people might ask, well, how do you prove that? And I'd ask the same thing <laughs> because what happens is that if you if you put these tests in the legislation, 
by saying, you know, in the legislation it says the Victorian IBAC can only hold a public hearing if it's in a public interest, if it won't ruin anyone's reputation and if it's an exceptional circumstance. Uh, and what that means is that if the Commissioner decides to hold a public hearing, as it has done, um, the people involved in that investigation can challenge the Commissioner and say, no, I don't think we should hold a public hearing for this because I don't think it's an exceptional circumstance. And then they need to go to court mm. as an aside to the investigation to try and prove that they're allowed to have these hearings in public. So it just creates a lot of um, mm. wasted time, I suppose, in, in pursuing these allegations in court, which happened in Victoria um, during one of the public hearings. They had to go and fight it out in court to see whether they're allowed to do it or not. Um, and the other thing about Victoria's IBAC is that the threshold for beginning investigations is quite high. So a recent case um, involving the Victorian mafia and the, the mobster lobster, which you guys might have heard about, mm. um, there was allegations that the, the opposition... Um, the opposition leader was meeting with uh, mafia leaders and trying to accept political donations through them. The difficulty with that is that because the Victorian IBAC has a high threshold of beginning investigations, it needs to be able to prove or have enough evidence to show that crimes were committed during a case before they can start investigating it. Wow. So it seems like a pretty upside-down way of doing it because if you knew that crimes were committed and you have enough evidence, what's the point of You don't need an it? investigation. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and, and why do you need that body as separate to the police? Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, so, you know, we're concerned and we've had advice from a range of um, barristers in the area that that lobster-lobster case is unlikely to be investigated by Victoria and I back. Mm. And so you've virtually got to have the answer before you start. Well, in, in Victoria, yes, and that's why we recommend the New South Wales ICAC model where, you know, where they can, where a lot of discretion is given to the commissioner on on, on what to pursue and, and, you know, massive cases like the Eddie O'Bead case just started with an anonymous phone call. Mm. Um, and in other states, that would probably not be pursued, but we, I think everyone can agree that we're grateful that New South Wales ICAC did pursue that case mm. and had the, the power and the, the jurisdiction and the, that low threshold to, to begin that investigation and start digging through those complex webs. Yes, and it's interesting how power can corrupt because Ian MacDonald was quite an activist in the anti-war movement when I was young and... Uh, and a you know pleasant young bloke out at La Trobe, but he certainly uh, power certainly corrupted in his case. Mm. Yeah. Well, we're sort of out of time, and thank you so much, Hannah, for joining us. It's really interesting to hear about what you're doing. No worries. Thanks a lot for having me. All right. Right. Yeah, we didn't actually get round to the close the gate thing. But oh no! Sorry. Gate, but, uh, no, it didn't were matter. Were you going to? Ask I was going to. Then? Ran out of time. It doesn't oh. matter. I mean, she was, it was going to be an obvious answer. It was a, <laughs> <laughs> wasn't going to be a probing <laughs> question. <laughs> 
think we can guess what yeah. she might have said. By the way, we've got a fifth Wednesday, I've realised, this month. So next week we've got to come up with... Um, we wow. Have, we've got no idea have we, no. what we've got next week. No idea, but we'll <laughs> oh, have gosh. something. Yeah. Anyway, Meg, thank Andy for doing a great job. Andy, you always do such an amazing job. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. No worries. Awesome. All right. Enroll to vote. Yeah, for the plebiscite. Yeah. For post-door plebiscite. Yeah. Childhood on the river banks, and life back there was so good. And the water he drank, he'd swim in her waters, he'd swim to the other side. Barkinji's sons and daughters, Barkinji River tribe, many tribes. Lots of families, river tribe We let you drink it You swim in our waters And you drained it away The river was mighty The water was strong Now she's dying today You know you were wrong You know you are guilty But you don't 